This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks again for joining me once again. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you're listening to The Faith Experiment. And this is episode number 25. And I'm calling this episode, How to Prepare for Bible Study. Now, in this episode, I have another e-guide to put together, which will summarize today's topic. So stick around to get the code word during the show. You need to text that code word to 0488845311. So save the number in your phone, 0488845311. Now, thanks again for joining me on the, on the Faith Experiment. If this is your first time, the Faith Experiment is about putting faith into practice. And so far, I have shared with you my own personal journey of faith, how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. I know the last few episodes have been exploring the theme of Bible study, how to study the Bible. And on this episode, we'll actually be starting the process of Bible study. So let's recap what we've covered so far when we're looking at this theme of Bible study. Well, first of all, we started this journey by trying to discover what the actual purpose of the Bible is. And what we found was, is that the purpose of the Bible, according to the teachings of Jesus, is that it serves as a witness to who and what he is. And then we found that the Apostle Paul expands this and he explains how this actually happens. And it happens through the process of seeing Christ through four lenses. A lens of doctrine, a lens of correction, and a lens of reproof. And finally, a lens of instruction in righteousness. And now, as we study the Bible and we see the Bible through these four lenses, we should start to see in every theme, in every text, in every passage, we should see an introduction to Jesus Christ. And the ultimate goal of the Bible by introducing us to Jesus Christ is to transform us into men and women of God who are equipped or supplied with every good work. And so this is our framework. This is our starting place as we open up the Bible for study. The end game, no matter what the passage, what the topic, what the theme, the end game of Bible study is to see Jesus through these four lenses, which will result in transformation in our lives. The whole purpose of studying the Bible is to transform the life. And that's only possible as we spend time with the person of Jesus. And that is possible because the Bible is a witness of Jesus. We then explored the anatomy of the Bible. We discovered that the purpose of the Bible in having the two divisions of the Old and New Testament. We also found that there are chapter divisions and verse divisions, which were added hundreds of years after the Bible was written. And the purpose of these chapter divisions is to help us with referencing and indexing of words and themes. And although these divisions are generally very helpful when reading and studying the Bible, the Bible student, we must keep in mind that these divisions are not inspired, and so we shouldn't allow them to limit our study in these divisions of verses and chapters. And we should always be trying to study the original thought or the paragraphs of the Bible text as we're going through this exercise of studying the Bible. We next looked at the process of revelation and how the Bible came to us from God as it was impressed upon the mind of the human prophet. And we learned how that the prophets used their own words, their own culture, their own ideas and expressions to communicate the original revelation. And this helps the Bible student to remember that 
We can't impose our 21st century thoughts and ideas and language on these prophets' words. But instead, we need to do a bit of research. We need to understand what these words, these thoughts and expressions and symbols, what these ideas meant to the prophet when they used them in order for us to get as close as possible to the original meaning of these passages. We also established why the Bible has 66 books and how the canon or the scripture was formed into what we have today. And we found evidence that suggests that the 27 books of the Bible were all chosen and placed in order in the time of the living apostles, which means, once again, for the Bible student, that we can have complete confidence that the 66 books we have in our Bibles today are the same that the Hebrews had and the same that the early church in the Christian era had. And we also have very valid reasons why the apocryphal books were left out of the canon. And then next on this journey of Bible study themes, we explored the translation methods and sources of our English Bibles. And we saw that how we need as Bible students to focus on Bible translations that come from the majority text, not the minority text. And that we should be using more word-for-word translations than the thought-for-thought translations, as this helps us once again get the closest to the original author's intent of the passage in question. I then took you on a whirlwind tour of storytelling, and we found that all Bible stories make up a single grand storyline. And this storyline has what we identified as seven unique chapters that tie the story together. And there's these golden threads that intertwine from beginning to end through each of our seven chapters along this storyline. Which, again, for the Bible student, knowing the storyline helps us understand what we're studying in light of the overall story. It helps us know which chapter in the story we are. And then as we study a passage, we can look for these golden threads, which serve as clever little clues that help us navigate as to what the passage is trying to tell us and how it's connected to our overall story. And then on the last episode, I shared with you how every division in our Christian church family over the past 2,000 years has been the result of biblical hermeneutics, which is just a fancy way of saying how the Bible gets interpreted. And we looked at the two methods of interpretation. There is the exegesis and the eisegesis method. And again, both of these exegesis and eisegesis have nothing to do with Jesus. They're just literally Greek terms which describe methods of interpretation. We saw that eisegesis method is the process of biblical interpretation where we interpret a passage in a way that puts a meaning into the text. And this is the situation where we're trying to see a passage in light of what's happening in our lives or in the world around us or in some some issue that we're facing. And we tend to interpret the text using these these contemporary methods. And we say things like, well, I think this text means or I feel that this text means. Or we ask questions like, well, what does this passage mean to you? And when we think or when we talk like this, we're always in danger of putting a meaning into the passage which was not originally there. And that's always a bad thing, and it's always a very damaging thing. Whereas on the flip side, exegesis is focused on one single thing. It's focused on drawing out the original meaning from the passage. And this is what we want to do as Bible students. We want to remove ourselves from the passage by asking questions, what did the author mean? 
when he wrote this passage? What did this symbol mean to him? What was this idea? What was this concept or this number? What did all of this mean to the original author? And then we can follow up with asking this question. What did the original author expect of the original audience to understand? Or more importantly, what did he expect them to do when they understood the message? And so if we keep these principles in mind, what the purpose of the Bible is, its ultimate purpose is to show us Jesus so that we're transformed into men and women of God. If we keep in focus that as we're studying Old Testament, it's always pointing us forward to a Messiah. When we're studying the New Testament, it's always focusing us back and anchoring us on the Messiah. When we understand the function of chapters and verses, when we know what the storyline structure of the Bible looks like and the chapters and the golden threads, and when we understand the sources of how we got our English translations and the methodology behind these translations, and when we look at this principle of exegesis, always trying to remove ourselves from the passage as we're trying to extract the meaning, the original meaning of the author to the original audience. When we keep all of these principles in mind, we are now getting to the best possible position to prepare to study the Bible. Now, if you missed any of the previous episodes and you want to catch up with some of these details, go and get the Faith FM app from your app store or go to faithfm.com.au and look under the podcasting section for The Faith Experiment. And you can find The Faith Experiment on all good podcasting platforms, which makes it super easy for you to keep up to date with The Faith Experiment. And so, now that we've answered all of these deep questions of the Bible, Things like purpose and construction and how do we receive it and how can we trust the canon, the English translations and the storyline and best rules we're interpreting. Now that we've done all of that, now we are ready to start the Bible study exercise. And that's exactly what we're going to get into right after a short break. And so don't forget to stick around to get today's code word for the e-guide on today's topic. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 4 453 That's 4453 Or send an email to robbie at Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns on music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king. Through all eternity Crown Him the Lord of love Behold His hands and sigh Rich wounds yet visible above In beauty glorified No angel in 
Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to the Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Roy Bergen, and this is episode 25 of the Faith Experiment. I'm calling this episode How to Prepare for Bible Study. And coming up on today's show is the code word to get the e-guide for today's topic. And so we are now in a place to start this exercise of Bible study. So why should we even study the Bible as Christians if we already believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died for our sins and he wants to transform us? Why do we need to study the Bible? Well, this is a question which I alluded to on one of the first episodes on this theme of Bible study. And I take you back to that that illustration that I used. I want you to imagine that you are a carpenter. Now, as a carpenter, you'll have certain tools like chisels and hammers and saws. Each one of these tools has a specific function in helping you in your trade as a carpenter. And so I want you to think of yourself as a Christian, as having a trade. After all, Jesus said that his followers, i.e. Christians, they have a function, and their function is to go into all the world and to teach all nations. So I want to share a few passages of Scripture with you to show that as Christians, we have very specific functions in this trade of Christianity. The first passage I want to share with you comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible says this, the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, study 
to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Apostle Paul here, speaking to Timothy and to all Christianity, is suggesting that as Christians we have a function to execute in this trade of being a Christian. And the very first thing he mentions here is that we have to study. And we have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. And then he actually specifically calls it a workman. A workman needs not be ashamed. And this is the thing. He connects studying to rightly dividing the word of truth. So rightly dividing the word of truth is the process of studying. That's how Paul frames it. So as Christians, as we pick up the Bible to study it, we need to know how to rightly divide the word of truth. Here's another one. In the book of Acts, in chapter 17, verse 15, it says, These were more noble men than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. And so here we have another picture that these followers of Christ living in Berea, they were very noble in that when they received the word from the apostles, they received it with all readiness of mind, which means they were open-minded, they received it, but then they went and searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things that the apostles were teaching were actually consistent with scripture. So in the previous passage in Timothy, we see that a Christian studies and that they rightly divide the word of truth. And here in Berea, the Christians, they are searching the scriptures daily. They're testing the truths or supposed truths that are being presented, even by the apostles. And then if we go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul puts it this way. He says to the Christian, he says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul, again, is calling the Christian to pick up the word of God, which is like a weapon to some extent, a weapon, a sword of the Spirit. He's saying pick up the word. Then he's saying the Bereans search that word daily. Then he says to Timothy that the Christian studies that word and knows how to divide the word of truth. And then we see in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, that Jesus adds to this this framework that the Christian is called to study. Matthew 22, verse 29. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And so Jesus is here talking to a bunch of religious leaders who are questioning him regarding religious themes, which they should have understood if they had studied the scriptures. And so Jesus is calling them out, saying, no, look, you're mistaken. You're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures. So Jesus is implying that the follower of God, the follower of Christ, ought to know the scriptures. We ought to be studying them daily. We ought to know how to rightly divide them. We ought to be picking up and putting on that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we have a a number of texts in the scriptures that indicate that as followers of Christ, we are called to active duty of Bible study. And so when we talk about Bible study, we, we need to talk about the tools for Bible study. We know that there is a trade, that we are called to actively be workmen and 
and pick up these scriptures and know how to rightly divide them and to test the truths that are supposedly presented to us to see if they're consistent with scripture. We know we ought to understand the scriptures and not be mistaken. We know all of that. But the question is, what's the tools for our trade? Now, obviously, the number one tool is the Bible. We need to have a Bible. And we've talked about Bibles in previous episodes when we talked about translations. Today in English, any English Bible you pick up is going to be a translation of the original manuscripts. And we talked about how that it's important to have translations for Bible study that are closer to the word-for-word end of the spectrum than on the thought-for-thought end of the spectrum. Now, you can read any Bible you want. I encourage you to read very variety of different translations. It's good to get different perspectives. But when it comes to studying the Bible, pick up a translation that's closer to the word-for-word end because that just helps us get closer to the original thought of the author and not sort of be influenced by bias of other people, as in the translators, giving us what they think the author was intending to say. So, Pick up your favorite translation. I have mine. For me personally, if you've asked, I know a number of you have texted in and asked me, what's my favorite translation? What do I use about Bible study? Well, let me give you a short story. I first started studying the Bible in the King James Bible. I shared with you early on in the faith experiment how when I was an atheist, I went into a Bible bookstore and I asked them for a Bible and he said, which Bible do you want? And I said, uh, the, the best one. And he, I walked out with the King James Bible. I didn't know Bible translations from a bar of soap, but I left there with a King James Bible. And I'll be honest, I found it very difficult to read, not being a super big fan of English literature to start with. I was more into, uh, let's say, car magazines. Let's put it that way. So I have this King James Bible. Now, what's interesting about King James Bible is, is that even though it's definitely old, 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 old English. It's interesting that it's got a more one-for-one exactness in the translation. So what do I mean by that? Well, what it means is that you can be not perfect, but it's relatively consistent. If it translates one Greek word into a particular English word, then it will be reasonably consistent in using the same English word for that same Greek word throughout the New Testament and the same thing the Old Testament with the Hebrew. And what that means is if you're studying this in English and you're not looking at it in a Hebrew or a Greek context, then it helps you sort of start seeing similar words or the same words being used throughout the Bible that have the same original meaning. It's not always the same, but it's pretty close to it. So that's an advantage of the King James, but the disadvantage is is that it's a lot of archaic words that we don't use anymore. And so often I found that when I first started reading the Bible, I'd have to use a dictionary to explain to myself what the English word meant before I could understand what the original author's word meant. So there was like another layer there. So it was a little bit harder, but it's not impossible. Now, remember, I didn't go out buying a King James Bible. It's the Bible that sort of landed in my lap, so to speak. And so what I found with the King James Bible is, is that It did two things for me. Early on, first of all, I didn't realize there were other translations, and so I never bothered looking at them. So I stuck with the King James Bible and I sort of learnt to to speak old King James. And then what happened with that was I found that the passages actually stuck in my brain much easier because they're so different to common vernacular that they sort of just resonate and they stick. And so I actually memorized a lot of the Bible early on in King James. And um, even today, I, if I quote a text, I often 
quoted in King James because that's how I remember it. But King James had an, has another advantage. It comes from the majority text. And the majority text is the one that we want to stay the closest to because it has uh, the more manuscripts and they have more consistency amongst the manuscripts. So I started with King James, and that was by accident. I didn't intend that. I didn't do any research to find out that, and that's just how I started. But over the years, um, working in different contexts and different cultures and different countries, um, obviously King James is very difficult for an English speaker in most cases, and so I found that there was some challenges in some of the non-English-speaking countries where I have worked. And so I migrated myself across to a new King James. New King James also comes from the same majority text manuscripts, it's also more on the word-for-word uh, word end of the spectrum. However, the New King James is a lot simpler to read. And so that allowed me to sort of keep some of that King Jamesness that I was familiar with that I started off with, but it also makes it a lot more easier to share, especially with non-English-speaking communities. So that's sort of my personal preference. So that was a long answer to a short question. The question's always been, what Bible translation do you use? I use a new King James. Um, I still use my old King James because I just love the poetic style of it now after all these years of reading it. Um, but I also have every other translation too. I read in the NLT. I have NIVs. I have all these. I even have a message Bible. I have all those sorts of Bibles. But remembering, I understand where these tools, translations are tools, where they sit on the continuum of translation. And I understand also which is the sources that these texts come from, which these translations are based on. So I understand those things. So I am very comfortable using any translation because I understand um, that background to it. But if you ask me, what do I recommend for picking up a Bible that's good on the word-for-word end of the spectrum and good for majority text, and it's a good Bible for studying Bible, getting the original meaning? So I would recommend a New King James. But if you don't have a New King James, that's not going to stop you from studying the Bible. Pick up whatever translation you've got and start studying the Bible. Now, that's the first tool, obviously the primary tool for the Christian. In Bible study, you have to have a Bible. That's the first thing. Now, there are a number of other Bible study tools that aren't super necessary, but they're going to help you get your job of Bible study done and get it done effectively. So let me suggest a few resources for you. Now, none of these resources do I get any kickback for. You're not going to make me rich by buying a resource. You're not going to make me poor by not buying one. It's just a recommendation of resources that I have bought myself and that I use myself. And so if you don't like it, that's fine. You don't need them to study the Bible, but they just help you a lot. So one of the things that I have that use that I use and I use a lot is called a Strong's Bible Concordance. Now, if you remember one of the episodes early on in the Faith Experiment, I talked about my experience of getting a Strong's Bible Concordance. And uh, it's a massive book, a couple of thousand pages. And the purpose of a Strong's Concordance is, is that it indexes every single word in your Bible to the original Hebrew or Greek language. Now, again, a lot of these concordances are based on the old King James, and that's kind of why I've stuck with these things for such a long time. Um, there are newer Strong's concordances or Bible concordances that are based on some of your newer translations, but you'd have to get one that matches your translation. Otherwise, it's kind of pointless. But the Strong's Bible concordance is a great resource. The reason is, is that... Let's say I'm studying the theme of 
salvation. What I can do with my concordances, I can go and look up the word salvation. And when I find that word salvation there in the concordance, it will then list every single verse in my Bible that uses the word salvation, which is awesome because it allows me to get snapshots of how this idea of salvation is used throughout the whole Bible. And it can help you build up a picture very quickly and very easily of how these words are used. That's one function of a Strong's. The second function is, is it allows you to look at what the original word behind the English word means, literally. So, for example, let's say we want to look up the word love. We find the verse where it's used. We go into the concordance. And when we find the word love in English, it will have a little number next to it in your concordance. It's called a Strong's number. Then that number you take to the back of your concordance and you will find that there is a Greek or Hebrew word, depending which testament you're in, whether it's Old or New Testament, and you will find that there is a definition to that original word. And these definitions can sometimes help expand your understanding of what that word is trying to communicate. Because remember, we're dealing with translations here. So this is a great resource for you. Now, I've shared with you in previous episodes that I bought a Strong's Concordance almost 20 years ago now, and it's been a constant companion in my study of the Bible. But today, I don't really use that book all that much because I have a software package that does the exact same thing, just a lot faster. I have it on my phone, I have it on my iPad, and I have it on my, on my desktop. So however you get it, whether it's a computer-based one, uh, an app-based one, or a physical book, a Bible student needs a concordance. Absolutely. That goes without saying. If you want a recommendation for a software package that uses a concordance, there are two that I have. One is called Olive Tree. You can get that on the iPhone, on the iPad, Android, and on the desktop. I like Olive Tree because it's super easy to use, and you literally just get your finger and tap a word in the English translation, and it will pop up with the original meaning from the Strong's. So it's a super easy piece of software to use. It does cost money. It's not that much, um, depending on what your budget is, but that's one resource. Another one, uh, this is kind of very, very academic. This one's called Logos. Um, Logos is a full uh, study suite for uh, sort of the heavy-duty Bible students, and it's, it is a lot more expensive, but it has a lot more power, but it's also a lot more complicated. So if you want a recommendation, I'd say if you're beginning out in the journey, go with Olive Tree. If you're serious, really serious about this and you've got a fair bit of cash to, to splash on this exercise, then uh, maybe consider Logos. These are the two resources that I'd recommend, especially if you are wanting to do this on a computer or an iPhone or iPad or Android phone or something like that effect. Now, another thing you want to look at is getting a Bible dictionary. And I like the Easton's Bible dictionary. Bible dictionaries are great because they give you um, understanding of some of the cultural aspects. And I share with you on previous episodes that when we're studying a passage of the Bible, we want to know what things meant to the author. So the Easton's Bible Dictionary can help you with things like that. If you want to know what was the significance of the color purple, then this will help you with that. If you want to know what does a name of a town mean, that will help you with that. So the three things I'd recommend, number one, you need your Bible. Number two, you need a Strong's Concordance. You can get that a hardbound or a digital copy, and you need a Bible dictionary. There is a whole wide range of them. I like the Easton's one. That's my personal favorite, and I have electronic as well. The last thing I would recommend you all considering is Bible commentaries. 
Bible commentaries are good, but they're not inspired. Bible commentaries are basically someone has studied the Bible for themselves and they've put down their thoughts into a book. Um, so you basically look up a book, say you're studying the book of Ruth. You'll go to the commentary in the section of Ruth. You'll find the chapter and the verse you're looking at, and then you'll find the thoughts of the Bible theologians that have studied that passage. Now, Bible commentaries are good because they can sometimes give you a lot of historical background, whether it's cultural, whether it's geographical, whether it's biographical. You get those insights from people who have spent 30, 40 years studying the history and the culture and the archaeology and those sorts of things. So Bible commentaries can be very, very, very helpful. There is a whole wide range of Bible commentaries. There is a Bible commentary called the Matthew Henry. That one's very popular. Um, and I have it and I like to use it, refer to, refer to it from time to time. But my favorite Bible commentary is called the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary. And it is a very, very good commentary. And the reason I like the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary is because it has been put together by a committee of theologians. Whereas some of these others, like Matthew Henry, it's done by an individual. And as I've said before, when we're studying the Bible. We always want to remove bias as best as we can and be intentional about not being biased. And sometimes when you're reading commentaries by individuals, you can get an individual bias. But when you're looking at commentaries that are written by committees, the committees go through peer reviews where they basically argue the points back and forth to justify why they're saying this this comment or this word or have this view or those sorts of things and that really helps remove bias and so there's a bunch of resources that would be very helpful for anyone looking to study the bible but like i said the only thing you really need is your bible if you want to start getting a bit more into depth get a bible dictionary get a strong concordance and look at bible commentaries well it's time to take a short break now but when we come back we're going to jump straight into preparing for bible study And don't forget to stick around to get today's code word for today's e-guide. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 25 of The Faith Experiment. I'm calling this episode, How to Prepare for Bible Study. And coming up is today's code word for the e-guide on today's topic. So stick around. So before the break, we were talking about the tools of the trade. We understand that studying the Bible is absolutely foundational to being a follower of Jesus Christ. We're told that we should pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We should know how to rightly divide the Word of Truth. We should be testing everything around us to see whether it's consistent with Scripture. And Jesus says that there is a danger for the Christian to not know the scriptures. And so when we put all this together, we know that we have a function as Christians of studying the Bible. And so before the break, I was sharing with you some of the tools of the trade, things like Bible and Bible translations, Strong's Bible concordances, Bible dictionaries, and Bible commentaries. So now that I've shared some of the tools for Bible study, let's talk about the framework of Bible study. And this is a framework that I sort of discovered early on in my faith experiment and it's a framework that I use even to this day and it's something that just really really helps dig out the original meaning of the passage and put it into practice in your own life and so I want to share this with you and I hope that you will you will find it a blessing for your own experience in your own faith experiment the framework comes from the bible itself and that's why I believe it has so much 
relevance, there's so much power in the Bible student's life. It comes from a book called Ezra. Now, Ezra was a a servant of God who lived in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity. And he was in Babylon during the reign of a king called Artaxerxes. The short story is, is that the book of Ezra is more about Ezra's God than it is about Ezra and what Ezra did. But in the midst of this book, there is an absolute gem. It's found in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. And this is what it says. It says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now, in this simple little verse, we're given the framework for Bible study. I don't know if you caught it, but there are four things in this passage that Ezra did. Let me read it to you again. It says, For Ezra had, number one, prepared his heart. That's the first thing Ezra does in this passage. He prepares his heart. The second thing it says, it says to seek the law of the Lord. That's the second thing. And the third thing, and to do it. And finally, and to teach in Israel. So there are four things that Ezra has done in this passage. It's a framework. First thing is he prepares his heart. The second thing is he seeks the law of the Lord. And the third thing is is his, he does it. And the fourth thing is he teaches it. And so when we look at these four steps, this four-part framework, what we find is, is that Ezra has to prepare himself to seek the law of the Lord. Now, the law of the Lord, the law in Scripture is nothing more fancier than a transcript of God's character. And so if he's preparing to study the transcript of God's character, that is essentially what we refer to as the Bible. It's Bible study. You're discovering God. You're discovering his character, his purpose, his wants, his His commandments. That's what the seeking part is. That's the Bible study component right there. But before you can do the Bible study component, Ezra recognized that he needed to prepare his heart before he could study the Bible. So the first step in our journey in preparing to study the Bible is the preparation of our hearts. And only then are we ready to pick up the Bible for Bible study. And then the third step is to do it. That's the application. That's where the transformation takes place. That's where what I've sought after in the character of God in the scripture, as I'm beholding this witness of Christ, it transforms me into a doing, an application. It's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. And it's only after that, only after the application of the text, that we're able to teach it. And this makes good sense. You've heard the age-old saying, practice what you preach. Well, the practicing is the doing it. That's putting it into practice. And once you're putting it into practice, then you teach it or preach it. So very simply, this little framework that Ezra has given us has four steps. Prepare your heart. Seek the law of the Lord. Do it. And then teach it. Now, if you would like to see a little infographic of this um, framework, then text the code word hash FE25INFO. 
That's hash, as in the hash symbol, followed by FE for faith experiment, then 25, as in episode 25, and then info, all one word, hash FE25 info. Text that to 04888-453-11. That's 04888-453-11. Text that and the SMS bot will send you a link to an infographic showing you this framework from Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. Now we're going to spend the next few episodes exploring the seeking part and the doing part and the teaching part of this framework. But on this episode, we want to focus just on the first part, which is Ezra prepared his heart. That's the first thing we want to talk about. Now, why is preparing the heart so important? Why did Ezra put emphasis on this? Well, you see, throughout scripture, Every time we encounter God, there needs to be a preparation before we enter into the presence of God. And that's what this preparing part is. It's about preparing ourselves to enter into the presence of God. And so we want to explore just a little bit. What does this practically mean for me in my life today? How do I prepare my heart to seek the Lord of the Lord? How do I prepare Bible study. We're going to pick that up right after a short break. So don't forget to stick around to get today's code word for the e-guide on today's topic. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. This is The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen and this is episode 25 of The Faith Experiment, which I'm calling How to Prepare for Bible Study. And coming up is today's code word for the e-guide on today's topic. So stick around. And before the break, I was sharing with you the framework that I have been using for the last almost 20 years now as I've been exploring this faith experiment, as I've been studying the scriptures. A a simple framework that I've extracted from the book of Ezra in chapter 7 verse 10, where the Bible says that Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it in Israel for statues and judgments. Now, I shared with you before the break that there are four steps in this passage. Ezra prepares his heart, then he seeks the law of the Lord, which is another way of describing the scriptures, and then he does it or applies it, and then he teaches it in Israel. Notice that the last thing in the steps is to teach the Bible. But before you can teach the Bible, you need to apply the Bible. And before you apply it, you have to have studied it. And before you can study it, you need to prepare your heart. And so we're going to spend a few minutes now exploring this concept of how to prepare the heart for Bible study. After all, we've got our Bible translations now before us, our English translation. We've got our Strong's Concordance. We've got our Bible commentaries and we've got our Bible dictionaries. We've got all the tools. We've got the theory behind it. We know what the purpose of the Bible is. We know how it's structured. We know the storyline. We know all that good stuff now. We're now ready. But the first thing now before we even open the pages of the Scripture is to prepare our heart. So let's unpack this. What does this look like practically? Well, if I was to ask you, point to your heart. If I had uh, a way to see you through this radio podcast, I would probably see you all pointing to your chest. Now, if I said to you, point to your heart from a Bible's perspective, I'm guessing that you've moved your finger from your chest to your head. And that is what most people would do 
Every time I ask them this question, point to your heart, they point to their chest, point to your heart according to the Bible, you'll point to your, your head, your brain, your skull. But the interesting thing is, is that in the Bible, these two words are not exactly interchangeable. Now, they are, but they aren't. Let me explain. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, a Greek New Testament book written by Paul, most people believe, comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, and Paul is actually quoting from the Old Testament, but we'll read it in Hebrews. This is what he says. He says, this is the covenant. He's quoting God here from the Old Testament. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. Notice that. I will put my laws, this is God speaking, I will put my laws into their hearts. Now point to your heart. You're probably pointing to your chest. And then it says, and, so I'll put my law into their hearts, and into their minds will I write them. I want you to notice that in this passage, when God is speaking, he's going to put the law of God, his own law, into how many locations? Two. And what are the two locations he mentions? One is the heart, and the other is the mind. Now, if I ask you to point to your heart and your mind at the same time, you're probably going to have two hands, one to your head and one to your chest. See, if the heart and the mind were the same thing, then God is being redundant here. He's, he's wasting his words because he might as well just say, I'm going to put my law into your, into your mind and into your mind. But he doesn't say that because it's not the same thing. He says, I'm going to put my law into their hearts and into their minds which means that the heart is different to the mind, biblically speaking. Now remember, Ezra said he is going to prepare his heart before he goes to the Bible study, before he tries to apply it, before he tries to teach it. He's going to prepare his heart, not his mind. Now there's a good reason why the Bible separates these two things. Even though they are connected, like without question they're connected, but they're different. For example, the mind is always connected to the seat of thought and reason in Scripture. Whenever it's talking about the mind, it's talking about how we're thinking and how we're reasoning. But the heart, when the heart is used in the Bible, it's always used to describe a seat of feeling and emotion. So we have feelings and emotions tied up with the symbol of the heart, and we have thoughts and reasons tied up with the symbol of the mind. So in this passage back here in Hebrews, where God's speaking, he's saying that he's going to put his law into our emotions, into our feelings, our heart, and he's going to put his law into our thoughts and our reason. Now, in psychology, there is an expression which says this. It says that a moral character is made up of the combination of thoughts and feelings. Your character as a person is the sum of your thoughts and your feelings. And so here we have this picture that as we come to study the Bible, we need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare our feelings and our emotions. And this is a very interesting concept. Let me take you to some Old Testament passages. In the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 5, God's speaking to Moses. Moses has seen this miraculous sight of a burning bush on top of a mountain, and he's made his way up there to, to, in, 
to discover it, to explore it, to study it. But before he even gets there to ask a single question or to to explore and understand this phenomena, before that even happens, he hears a voice. And this is what he hears in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. It says, And he said, this is God speaking out of the bush, he says, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. You see, as Moses is approaching God, in the form of the burning bush, as he's trying to seek it and to understand it and discover it, as he's trying to answer questions, before that can even happen, God calls out to him and says, Moses, take off your shoes. Take them off your feet because the place you're standing is holy. You see, Moses had to prepare in order to seek. He had to prepare himself in an attitude of worship and reverence in order for God's character to be understood, to be revealed. And so for us today, as we're preparing our hearts for Bible study, is there something that's on our feet that we need to take off? Is there something? Now, by the way, these these shoes he took off were um, made from animal skins. And so he had to take off this deadness of his feet before he could enter onto this holy ground. Is there something in your life today that would be the equivalent of this deadness? Is there something you need to put off before you can enter into the presence of God to speak to you, to to hear his voice speaking to you through the pages of these scriptures that we're going to pick up? So there's an interesting parallel here between Ezra preparing his heart, his emotions, his feelings before he enters into the presence of God and Moses here having been told to take off this these dead garments and, uh, and remove them from you because you're entering into a place of presence, a place of God and you need to have the distractions removed from you. Here's another passage in the book of Genesis chapter 35. This is a story where Jacob is told by God that he wants to meet him. So God wants to meet Jacob and he's telling, give him, give him some notice. He's saying, I want, I want you to come into my presence. But then notice what God says to Jacob. He says, Jacob, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Now, what's interesting here is that before God could encounter with Jacob, And before Jacob could encounter with God, God tells Jacob to prepare himself. And to prepare himself, in Jacob's specific case, was to change his garments, to be clean, and to remove the strange gods. Now, when you continue on the passage, the strange gods were jewelry. That's what was described. And so Jacob goes to all the ladies in the camp and says, give me your jewelry. He gets all the jewelry and he goes over to a tree and he digs a hole and he buries the jewelry under the ground because in this passage, it was about being prepared to meet God. Is there something in your life that needs to be stripped away or put away to allow you to enter into this presence where you can hear the voice of God speaking to you? Now, here's another passage from the book of James in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 8. James writes this, he says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so James is laying another principle here. 
as we seek God, as we draw nigh to him, he draws nigh to us. And then he tells us, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. You see, when we come to the Bible, it's not that God can't speak to us in whatever state or condition we're in. I'm not saying that. I don't think the Bible's teaching that. God will reach a sinner if he's drunk, if he's high on drugs, if he's screaming at his wife. God can reach a sinner. Don't get me wrong. But as God draws us now into a relationship in this faith experiment where we, where we understand he exists, and God's drawing us into this realm of presence with him. He wants to speak things into our lives. It's going to transform us to the core. And in this next level, this this level up in our faith experiment, God wants to prepare our hearts. He wants to prepare how we feel, our emotions. And as we do this, As we go through this experience, it's interesting to know that there are a number of things that can affect our feelings. And if our feelings aren't aren't right, then it hinders our ability to understand the character of God in Bible study. Here's some some common factors in the medical realm that um, highlight how our feelings can be impacted by things around us. For example, medical science tells us that our feelings can be affected by exercise. If we're not exercising, then we often don't feel as good as we can if we do exercise. Our food, the types of food we're eating, can affect the way we feel because foods have stimulants in it. Some foods have have uh, negative impact on our feelings and some food have positive impact on our feeling. Our, our attitude, attitude is our mental um, decision, on how we should think about something, and that attitude can affect our feelings. Stress can affect our feelings. Uh, Lack of sleep can affect our feelings. Too much sleep can affect our feelings. The amount of water we take into our bodies can affect our feelings. The color of our environment, if we're in a black room or an orange room, these things affect our feelings. Hormones can affect our feelings. The amount of sunlight we get or don't get can affect our feelings. What we're watching on TV or movies can affect our feelings. The types of music we're listening to can affect our feelings. The friends we have or the the friends we don't have can affect our feelings. The use of caffeine can affect our feelings. And sugar, the use of that in our diets can affect our feelings. The relationships we have can affect our feelings. Even the weather can affect our feelings. And of course, our work lives can affect our feelings. So there's a whole range of things here that impact our feelings. And so let me give you some examples. If I'm staying up late at night, eating unhealthy food, not exercising, watching late night movies on TV, and I wake up tired, how do you think my feelings are going to be when I go to open up my Bible in the morning? Probably not good. The feelings of my heart, the seat of my emotions are not going to be conducive for me to concentrate on studying the Bible. For example, how many of you have woke up in the morning, you open up the Bible, you're dead tired, you know you want to read the Bible because it's the right thing to do and you think it's some sort of religious duty, but as you're doing it, all you feel is like, I'm too tired for this, or I don't feel like this, or I feel too sad, or, I feel too happy, I feel too energetic, I feel whatever. And, and the whole Bible study experience lacks. Well, these are some of the reasons, and we don't even think about it, because we sort of disconnect our physical from our spiritual. But all of these physical things I've just listed, they can all impact our spirituality. And so I want to give you a challenge over the next week. 
I want you to think about what are the things that you're doing or the things you're not doing that are impacting how you feel and how might that impact your attitude towards studying the Bible. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show that I have this great little e-guide that I put together on today's topic, and it helps put some of these frameworks in perspective and some of these Bible principles. And so if you'd like to get your free copy of this e-guide, then all you need to do is text the code word hash FE25. That's the hash symbol followed by FE for Faith Experiment and number 25 for episode 25. Text that to 04888 That's 04 04- Triple eight four five three double one, and the Faith FM giveaway bot will ask you for some details and send you the link to today's e-guide. Next time on the Faith Experiment, we're going to continue exploring this idea of Bible study, what it is, how it works, and a whole lot more. And don't forget to give me your feedback. I really do appreciate it. You can text your comments or questions and feedback to me on 04888 or you can email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au. Now, I'll catch you next week at the same time right here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment. I'll see you then. You have been listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Connect with us via text message on 04888 453 4538 or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au and let us know what you thought of this episode.